This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. I'm thrilled to welcome back Hugo Lowe. He's a reporter in the Washington Bureau of The Guardian covering Donald Trump and the Justice Department. You are a repeat guest here on Passing Judgment. I'm so thrilled to have you. As I said before we started recording, you are killing it. You're breaking so many important stories, and you're keeping us informed about the biggest legal news of our time, which is the issues facing the former president. So Hugo, thank you for being here. Thank you for passing judgment. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hugo, you just had a piece out this week where you talk about the timing in the classified documents case. And I'd like to spend some time today going through the highlights of where we are in each of the cases. And I think it makes sense to start with the federal cases. And first, the case involving the unlawful retention of documents at Mar-a-Lago. And this case, of course, is overseen by Judge Eileen Cannon, who was appointed by the former president. And I'm hoping you can remind us what just happened with respect to timing and why is timing so important in this case? Yeah, this is my favorite case of all of them. It's the one about Trump retaining these national defense information documents at Mar-a-Lago and then obviously obstructing the government's efforts to retrieve them, including defying that grand jury subpoena. And I think it's 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 a fascinating case because the evidence is so overwhelming. Uh, and yet, as you allude to, the scheduling issues seem to mean that this case may not go to trial before the election, at least uh, with the way we're headed. And that is to do with the complex rules surrounding the introduction of classified information into Espionage Act trials, and it's the Classified Information Procedures Act, or SEPA. The issue with SEPA is there are seven stages, and each stage has to be completed sequentially before you get to the next stage. And if there is a delay in one part, um, then it kind of throws off the entire schedule. And when Judge Eileen Cannon who is the judge overseeing this case, as you said, delayed a series of deadlines in the scheduling order that initially projected this May trial date. The net effect of that was to screw up the entire schedule. And we had some reporting this morning uh, that we are effectively four months behind schedule now, and there is no way we're going to trial in May. And you were really the reporter who I think flagged this the earliest, which is this case is not going to trial before the election. I know it might feel obvious, but can you remind us why the timing is so important when it comes to criminal trials? And I keep saying the former president, but also a current candidate for the presidency. Right. You know, Trump has made no secret of the fact that his overarching legal strategy in all of his criminal cases is to try and delay past the 2024 election, if possible. And of course, that is because he believes, you know, with good reason, that if he wins re-election, he will be shielded, at least from the federal cases, 
from the office of the presidency. Because if the case is already adjudicated, let's say he's convicted, he can make those, the, the criminal liability go away by, you know, issuing a self-pardon potentially, right? And if the cases are not adjudicated, which is what he's hoping for, then he can just direct his attorney general, whoever he appoints, to simply drop the cases because that is in the purview of the attorney general. And if he finds a loyalist, which he almost certainly will, to run the Justice Department, that is what's going to happen. And I'll just add a fun wrinkle, which is, of course, we've never seen a president attempt a self-pardon. So I do think there is still a legal question there, particularly given the phrasing of the pardon clause in the Constitution, which in my view really reflects the idea that there is a giver of the pardon and somebody who, a different person who receives the pardon. But as you know, I think the former president has made absolutely no bones about the fact that he thinks the best way to avoid a prison cell is to be in the Oval Office instead. And you flagged the state cases, which I want to talk about as we move forward. But a few more questions on this Mar-a-Lago case, because I think you're right. It's absolutely fascinating. The evidence is overwhelming in my view. Do you see places where this case would be proceeding in a much more different way and maybe different pace if there were a different judge? I know you talked about the SIPA issues, but are there places where you think, you know, any federal judge would have made this call or are we really seeing Eileen Cannon arguably make decisions that are quite beneficial for Trump? No, I think I think for sure that Eileen Cannon has made decisions that are beneficial for Trump. Um, her application of SIPA in this case is is the furthest thing from precedent that we have ever seen. You know, just as just as an example, typically and, and she actually did this in her original scheduling order, which is you typically set out the entire SIPA timetable. And you go from sections one through seven and you you list all the deadlines and they're within weeks of each other. And it's it's a pretty choppy, choppy pace because you need to get through all of this litigation. But in her latest scheduling order, Judge Cannon basically put off scheduling some of the biggest deadlines in SEPA um, until at least March, which is an extraordinary amount of time it takes to get to basically where we are at, which is section five of SEPA, which is kind of considered the most important part of that process because it's to do uh, with what Trump intends to introduce at trial um, in terms of kind of classified discovery material. And the whole point of SEPA is so that defendants like Trump don't surprise the government at trial and blackmail the government basically by saying, Hey, you know, if you're going to try our client or try to, you know, try me, then I'm going to introduce all this classified information into the public domain. And effectively, you know, it's known as gray mail, uh, in, in, in national, national security circles, right? And the way that the judge has put off setting deadlines in this case is the furthest, the furthest thing from standard practice that if Trump had been assigned any other judge, even in the Southern District of Florida, the case would not be proceeding in the way that it currently is, which is 
with, as I said, like a four month delay. And this, in my mind, is very consistent with what Judge Cannon did in an earlier iteration of the case where she was ruling on the issue of a special master. And she made, in my mind, a completely baseless ruling. And without getting into the details, even the conservative appellate court in that case essentially fought back and said, no, there's no legal basis for a special master in this situation. And it seems to me exactly, Hugo, as you outlined, that every step of the way, she has acted like a better advocate for the Trump legal team than the Trump legal team itself. It's almost like getting Judge Kaczmarek in Texas for an abortion-related case. I mean, it it really is a huge win for them. And, and can, I, can I just say one thing about that point in, in terms of an observation from the courtroom? Because um, I had the unfortunate um, situation of having to go back to Fort Pierce three times in the last uh, four weeks um, for various hearings. But it is, it, is, it is palpable and noticeable in the courtroom how much the judge does not seem to get along with uh, the prosecutors. And whether it's, you know, cutting Jay Bratt, the lead, uh, the lead prosecutor on this case off when he, when he, when he's talking or how much uh, deference, frankly, she is showing the Trump, uh, team. It is, it is, it is actually rather extraordinary. And I've never seen it to that extent before. You know, for instance, you know, part of the reason why these deadlines are getting held up is because, um, she insisted that, and this is not unreasonable, I think, you know, she insisted that the classified discovery has to be produced in a skiff in this district, as in, in the Southern District of Florida, where the case is being brought rather than in Washington or New York or elsewhere. And part of that is also because I think she wants to review the discovery and she is getting her own skiff to review these classified materials. Anyway, so, she at one point, you know, turns to Todd Blanche, Trump's lead lawyer here and says, you know, are you sure you've got all the discovery? Are you sure you don't need more time to make your pre-trial motions? And, and Todd Blanche goes, actually, no, we've now seen all, we've got all the discovery. It's fine. We can proceed. And then she goes, well, I might be inclined to push the dates back anyway, because I'm concerned that all of these criminal cases that Trump is involved in might collide between March and May. So to me, it seemed like, you know, she was going above and beyond what she needed to do in terms of giving the defense time to look at the discovery. And then when they said it was all right, she actually changed tack and came up with a different reason of why they might need to uh, delay or continue trial. And I just, I just thought it was very noticeable. And it, it was, it was kind of one of the more unusual moments uh, in all of the criminal cases that we've been covering. That is remarkable. And it's something that we wouldn't know because we're not in the courtroom. As you said, you had the unfortunate experience of being there. Are there places where you think the government could try and challenge her actions pre-trial? Are there places where you think they could, but as a tactical matter, they've decided it's better to just try and keep moving in the district court? You know, it's, it's a really good question. And I wonder if, you know, we're starting to get to the point now where uh, the special counsel's team thinks enough is enough. You know, you know, when this case got assigned to Judge Cannon at, you know, uh, post indictment, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, would the government move to have her recused as a result of her decisions in the special mass litigation and, and with the 11th Circuit saying she abused her discretion in granting Trump that request um, during the grand jury investigation. Um, and obviously that never came to pass. But the latest string of court, he uh, court hearings and, you know, putting off the deadlines, you know, has started to give me 
polls about that. Again, you know, it's, it's difficult because as you know, you know, article three judges have broad discretion yes. uh, in their courtrooms and setting, you know, setting schedules. And just because she has pushed, pushed back, you know, a handful of deadlines as significant as they may be, um, you know, a couple of months or three months probably doesn't get to the threshold needed in the 11th circuit to recuse a judge. You know, these are not, you know, uh, kind of appealable orders, to be honest. You know, these aren't, you know, interlocutory. These are, you know, just <laughs> scheduling decisions. And so I think it's difficult to, even for the government, if even if they wanted to have her recused, to put together a brief with with arguments that would meet that threshold. I think that's exactly right. And just flagging for everybody listening at home, what you're saying with respect to interlocutory appeals is basically that some judicial decisions are appealable, others are not. And even those that are appealable, separate from that, judges have an enormous amount of discretion, particularly federal judges, when it comes to timing. And of course, we've never had a situation where there is a criminal case pending against a former president who's a current candidate, and the timing is happening against that backdrop. Now, are there things that you are looking for in this trial if Joe Biden wins re-election, if this case goes to trial? Are there particular places already, I know it seems like a long ways away, that you think we really need to keep our eye on this? It's a good question. I think, you know, we we have some idea of the of the of the discovery evidence. And, you know, we obviously have a lot of information about what prosecutors amass in terms of evidence in general, because the indictment and the superseding indictment was just so, so chock full of kind of information, right? Kind of as you pointed out, you know, I think as with all espionage trials, to me, what's really interesting is how or what sort of defense Trump is going to use because, you know, under the, the statute about retaining national defense information, there are not that many defenses. It's pretty much limited to saying, you know, either the documents at issue were not national defense information or you could say maybe they weren't closely held, which is the kind of the, the standard here, right? Or, you know, they weren't sensitive or, or something to, you know, something along those lines. And, you know, during the, the criminal investigation, I know the Trump lawyers were exploring some of these ideas and they were like, well, you know, for instance, if there was a document at Bedminster that Trump was waving around, you know, above his head showing to Susie Wiles, you know, the, the, the map about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for instance, right? Like, is that, was that closely held at that time? Potentially not. You know, that map would have been a few years out of date. You know, events in Afghanistan were getting overtaken, you know, by the hour. So could he conceivably make an argument on some of these counts that the documents were no longer closely held or no longer constituted, you know, sensitive information? You know, potentially. And that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm curious to see because there aren't that many defenses available to him. And so he's going to have to be really creative in getting around the espionage charges. Now, also interesting for me in this case is the obstruction side of it, because that played such a large role in the formation of the, of the criminal investigation and what led, you know, uh, kind of DOJ to be so aggressive in pursuing this. And for instance, how much of Evan Corcoran's notes are going to end up as admissible evidence at trial? You know, the Trump lawyers for a long time thought what Beryl Howell, the, the chief judge in DC, did in terms of allowing prosecutors to see the entirety of 
you know, this Trump lawyer's notes about how they respond to the subpoena was wrong. And they are pretty confident that, um, especially with Judge Cannon, that they will be able to have a lot of those notes concerning, you know, Trump making a, you know, suppose a plucking motion and, you know, intimating to Evan Corcoran, oh, you know, take the bad documents out, you know, like stuff like that will be struck um, in Florida because, you know, maybe they're not as, yeah, maybe her interpretation, maybe the judge's interpretation of, you know, uh, crime fraud exception to the attorney client privilege is not met. And so they are looking to whittle down as much of the evidence, obviously, as they can out of the indictment. And I think the way they do that will be very fascinating. I think you're exactly right to zero in on those two things. And that's really helpful for people listening at home, which is on the Espionage Act. And again, this doesn't hinge on whether or not the documents were technically classified, um, but it hinges instead on the closely held analysis that you were talking about. And on the obstruction case, I think, again, exactly right that it depends on what is the evidence that comes in. And there is a lot of leeway for a trial court judge to say, I don't think so when it comes to certain evidence you pointed to the attorney-client privilege question. And I think that's, that is a live one. Now, speaking of limited defenses, I actually think in the other federal case, the case involving election interference in January 6th, there are more defenses available to the former president. I want to, before we leave our conversation, touch on that federal case a little bit. And if you could remind us, where are we in timing in that case? I know we have a very different judge. We have Judge Chutkin, who seems to have extremely low patience for delay tactics from the Trump team. She has already imposed a limited gag order in that case. Is there a greater chance that that case could go to trial before the election? Yeah, I think if there is one case that goes to trial before the election, it's the federal January 6th case. You know, and, and kind of as you have said, Judge Chuckin in DC has made it abundantly clear that the more that Trump tries to make inflammatory comments, the more that he tries to kind of assail the pre-trial process, the more inclined she may be to bring the trial date forward um, so as not to taint, you know, the jury pool or prejudice the jury pool in DC. And I thought that was a very uh, you know, that was not something that anyone had really considered. And I think even the Trump lawyers, when they heard that in, in court for the first time, were a little stunned. And uh, I think their their reaction was telling him that they did not expect that to be one of the options they could be confronted with. I mean, in terms of the the case itself, I think, again, it's look, it's a strong case. You know, the, one of the statutes, and especially the statute about obstructing an official proceeding before Congress, the, the 1512 statute. You know, that is one that has been brought against hundreds of January 6th rioters. This is a, this is a statute that the Justice Department, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. has prosecuted over and over again. The D.C. courts are so used to this charge at this point. There is part of that statute that refers to kind of corrupt intent that we are yet to have a controlling definition of at the circuit level, which is, you know, which is to say, like, what is the standard? Like, what standard do prosecutors have to show that Trump acted corruptly? And I think that's the, the big weakness in the, the federal case as a whole, because the circuit court judges who have heard appeals on the obstruction law 
have wildly diverged. You know, there's some judges who say corruptly means, you know, did the defendant gain an unlawful benefit? Or um, did it means he, that doesn't mean he acted uh, with criminal intent to commit a second crime in, 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 in obstructing Congress. And so there's a lot of discussion about this and it's not resolved. That being said, you know, the one issue that I think everyone was concerned about leading up to that indictment was do prosecutors have enough to prove that, you know, Trump had mens rea, had that guilty kind of conscience? Um, did he know that he had lost the election when, you know, he was trying to overturn the, the results? And actually, I think on that count, the case is very strong because under 1512, prosecutors don't have to show that. And I, and I know that's been a kind of a complicated discussion about it, but it's a complicated statute. I think you're exactly right to zero in on that. I've written a little bit about this where corrupt intent does not require, I know I lost the election. It requires, I know I can't do X to try and challenge the loss of that election. And we can, in my view, make an analogy to Vigilante justice, for instance, where you can think my neighbor stole my wallet, you don't get to break into that house and set off a fire and try and find your wallet. There are proper channels that you have to go through. We can think of Al Gore and how he might have thought that he won the election. He used legal means to challenge the result and ultimately concluded that there were no more legal means. Is that essentially what you're reading is as well, which is even though there is, in my view, an enormous amount of evidence that Trump knew he lost, that it may not hinge on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it doesn't hinge on that at all. And in fact, you know, there is at least one uh, opinion written by a um, a district court judge in, in D.C., Royce Lamberth, um, that makes that very clear. Um, it's in the case of this January 6th riot defendant called Alan Hostetter who kind of made it into his defense that, you know, he really did believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, and so he was trying to, you know, trying to redress that by kind of petitioning Congress. And the line that was operative in that opinion was, you know, quote, you know, belief in the greater good does not negate consciousness of wrongdoing. And even if Mr. Hostetter genuinely believed the election was stolen and that public officials had committed treason, that does not change the fact that he acted corruptly with a consciousness of wrongdoing when he stormed the Capitol. And I think that is very instructive. Very instructive. Of course, not as my, I view it, not necessarily binding, but I think that's exactly the right reading. As you said, 1512 is a complicated statute. And ultimately, that's where I think a lot of us land on the best reading of it. I mean, I think that's the common sense reading of it, right? It's like, you know, it's, you can't just go in and, 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 you know, have Congress interrupted in its official duties because you think the election was stolen. And as you said, there are, there are proper channels in which to do that. Trump was certainly aware of the proper channels, not least because he pursued those channels. He did, you know, mount, you know, legal efforts in these battleground states. He did try and, he, I mean, his, 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 his allies in Congress did try and, you know, uh, sue so they knew there were legal channels. And when those failed, that was when he shifted his focus to January 6th. Right. And I think if the prosecution can explain it 
as clearly to the jury, that will be very powerful, um, assuming that, of course, the case does, in fact, go to trial. As I mentioned, there's a gag order in that case. I'm wondering if we can do a little legal political analysis. And it's been my feeling that Trump is actually thrilled to have this gag order because he can say to his base, who he's been saying for a long time, I'm the victim of the worst political witch hunt. They're just trying to silence me. And then now he can point to this gag order, another gag order in the New York case and say, see, I told you they're trying to silence me. Am I overreading? But I feel like he wanted it. He dared the judge to implement it. And now he's going to violate it. I don't know if he wanted it, but I think once he got it, you know, it was, it was like, there was no downside for him here, right? Like, if he didn't have a gag order, he would continue to assail the prosecutors. He would assail Jack Smith, the special counsel. He would attack the judge. If he did get the, the gag order by doing so, by making these kind of inflammatory statements, he could then claim that he was being, you know, politically gagged and it was a, a political prosecution and effectively say the same thing that he was previously saying, just in more kind of general terms and attacking the gag order itself as opposed to the prosecutors. But the end result for him is the same. So I think ultimately, his team at least doesn't care that much. Like there is a silver lining for them in either direction. It's just, you know, who are they going to be attacking? But the message is going to be the same. And, you know, that has been pervasive through, through all of the things Trump has done. And, you know, that is the hallmark of his, his messaging when it comes to these criminal cases. Like you know, the one thing he really wants is if he cannot get these cases and these trials delayed beyond the 2024 election, he wants them to come right before the 2024 election, because then he can make this argument to his supporters that, oh, look, these cases are going to trial right before the election. This is election interference. Despite the fact that the actions that gave rise to the cases, of course, occurred far before the election and that these cases would have proceeded whether or not the former president decided to declare that he was a candidate for the presidency again. Right. And, and, and doubly so because... You know, the argument that a lot of conservatives like to make on Fox News is, you know, they pull up this timeline and they say, oh, you know, they brought this, they brought all these cases right before the election or election year, which means it's political. You know, part of the reason they've come now and not before is because Trump was busy litigating executive privilege on behalf of people that arguably did not have an executive privilege protection in the first place. And he just tried it on for size because it delayed everything. And when he inevitably lost those cases... The, the, the investigations continued. But were it not for the fact that he himself delayed the progression of these cases, they wouldn't have come at the time that they have come. So, you know, a lot of the delays and a lot of the timing is his own fault, to be honest. And as you phrased it, trying those executive privilege cases on for size. But in fact, I think a plain reading of the doctrine of executive privilege, why it was judicially created and what it's meant to protect would indicate that many of those claims were not really live claims. They were truly delay tactics. And I know your time is limited, so I would love to end with a quick question about the state election interference case, because we've talked about the two federal cases and how if they have yet to go to trial and or been adjudicated, then Trump, if he wins, could try and pardon himself he could also try to direct, depending on where the cases are, for his attorney general to drop them. But the same is not true for a state case. So the Georgia election interference case, 
obviously overlaps in some factual ways and some significant ways with the federal election interference case. But if Trump wins the presidency, he can't self-pardon. He can't tell his attorney general, drop the case. But I do think that there are places for him to try and exert pressure both in and outside the courtroom. Is there something that you hope listeners are looking for in terms of how he could try and thwart the the Georgia case? Ah, that's a good question. I think, you know, Georgia is very interesting because, you know, the the district attorney, Fanny Willis, you know, just said the other day that she didn't expect this trial to end up until at least 2025. And if that is the case, then, you know, by the time, you know, assuming it goes to trial and the trial concludes, we will know if Trump is president or not. If he is not president, then, you know, all of this, all of this difficulty goes away, right? You know, he's, then he would be treated like any other criminal defendant. If he is president, the one thing that I will be looking for is what is the consequence of him holding that office? Because at the federal level, with DOJ, obviously there are Office of Legal Counsel internal memos that would say, you know, you cannot stop a president from discharging his duties. And so any sort of criminal exposure if he was convicted would be paused. Um, I don't know if there is a mechanism by which, you know, Trump could exert pressure on the governor there, if it's no longer Brian, you know, if it's no longer Brian Kemp, if it's, you know, if, if, if there is a way for him to change the pardon process in the state, like who knows, you know, this is the big unknown with a potential Trump second term is how he will not only change the federal judiciary, like the, the federal government and, uh, kind of, and how that works both at DOJ and in the West Wing, but also kind of what influence he'll have on, on, on kind of state officials and governors. And whether he will bring, you know, the, the federal government's influence to bear and his own influence to bear there as well. Uh, I just think it's, a, a, for now, it's an unanswerable question. I think, yes, what we're going to see is if that happens, the president saying the federal government and the state government are separate sovereigns. The state is trying to interfere with my ability to do my job as head of the executive branch. And, you know, simply put, you can't do that. Now, in this case, you just, I think, very clearly laid out the timing and why that matters. And last question that I think maybe people might be confused about or thinking about is that there have been a number of guilty pleas in the Georgia case. I know it might feel like ancient history because we're talking about weeks as opposed to days and these legal developments come very quickly. But what does it mean that we see guilty pleas from Trump's former attorneys? What does it mean that we see Jenna Ellis and Chesbro and Powell say, yes, I committed certain crimes? Does that have a direct effect on the case against the president, or are we not sure how that's going to play out? Hmm, I think uh, it, both, both, both. Um, it depends on the on the on, on on the defendant who has turned cooperator, right? Someone like Scott Hall, the the the, the, the local Republican operative, probably not going to have a major impact on the the case against Trump. And I also think maybe Jenna Ellis and Rudy and and Sidney Powell's pleas may not have the biggest effect on Trump either, because. Um, you know, those related to a lot of the immediate post-election stuff. You know, um, I think, I think 
at this point, and it's still difficult to tell, is do the fact that they take plea deals encourage people higher up the chain to also take plea deals because that's like the next level of incrimination, as it were. That being said, obviously, if oh, now that you know people like Chesbro have started to take deals and pleaded guilty to some of the overt acts in the racketeering conspiracy, that is obviously very bad for Trump because, for instance, Chesbro essentially admitted or acknowledged that the fake states of electors, in Georgia at least, were fraudulent and that he liaised with Trump about these fake electors and he briefed them. He briefed the former president and the former president was unaware that, you know, of, of the situation regarding the fake slates in Georgia. And so the more, you know, and, I, and this is just common sense, right? Like the more that people, you know, admit to parts in the overt acts in the RICO case, by the time the Trump case gets to trial, you, you know, let's say you have like, I don't know, 13 cooperating witnesses who all say, yes, you know, 60, 80% of the, of the RICO cases we've all pleaded guilty to, we all admit was illegal. That's very compelling. Um, and, you know, obviously you get into the, the difficult, the, the issues about, you know, what's admissible, what's not admissible. You know, is, is Jenna Ellis's, you know, statements about Dan Scavino drunk going to be admissible? Perhaps, perhaps not. But, um, I think as a whole, the, the slow boil of plea agreements that his co-defendants are taking is, is bad news for him, uh, vis-a-vis the racketeering case for sure. It, it just can't be good news. I think you've zeroed in on it, which is the question is how bad is the news? Is it, you know, somewhat neutral or really bad? And that's something that we're going to have to watch. And of course, we will be looking at your reporting for that. Hugo Lowell, a reporter for The Guardian covering Donald Trump and the Justice Department. Your reporting has been indispensable. And I want to thank you so much for your time and for everything you're doing to keep us informed. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love these discussions. 